to another episode of Students Talk Security. Today, we are lucky to be joined by Sarah Sievers, the Associate Dean of Policy and Practice for the Keough School of Global Affairs. Prior to taking this position, Sarah served as the Founding Executive Director of Columbia University's Center for Globalization and Sustainable Development and Harvard University's Center for International Development. She also began the Developing Country Policy and Advocacy Portfolio for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Global Health Objectives. Dean Sievers, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. So refugees and migration is a topic that has seemed to frequent in the news recently. And to start out, I was hoping that we could discuss the crisis of the Rohingya refugees. Can you start out by discussing the current crisis for us, and then maybe we can talk about potential options for policymakers? Sure, thanks for asking. Um, the situation in, in Myanmar, um, in Rakhine province, where the Rohingya people uh, have lived for some hundreds of years um, uh, is, I think, one of the most heartbreaking humanitarian situations uh, on the planet today. Um, there's literally no country that wants these people in their borders at this point, including the one in which they were born and including the one where their um, ethnicity uh, is headquartered or, or comes from. So. Um, they are uh, they are a group of several million and now fewer um, uh, people living in Myanmar, um, ethnic Bengalis, and have been literally burned out of their homes, uh, hundreds of thousands, seven eight hundred thousand at this point and counting in recent months, by the military uh, in in Burma and Myanmar. Um, and uh, many have been killed, you know, any kind of, you know, humanitarian um, tragedy you can imagine uh, are, are things that they have described having happened to them, you know, as we've been in school this academic year. Um, they are now largely in camps in, uh, in uh, Bangladesh. Um, awaiting the monsoon season, uh, which is supposed to start in a couple of weeks, and all the people who know much about monsoons and about what the effect monsoons are likely to have um, in the areas where these camps are, are predicting a big disaster on that front as well. So it's really quite a, a, a sad situation, a tragic situation. And if there ever were a time where we would have we would have thought that we wanted to see you know international leadership or U.S. leadership sure. with any kind of a conscience, this would be one of those times. At this point, people aren't asking whether this is an ethnic cleansing or not. They're asking whether it's an ethnic cleansing or a genocide. Um, and these are people like the the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, and we don't have a good solution yet. Bangladesh has been um, good enough to accept them reluctantly. Um, this is not a new problem. There was a crisis in 2012. This current version was foreseen uh, and considered sort of inevitable at, at some point. Uh, there's a long history uh, that's not worth going into. But what is worth going into is that we don't have a good solution for uh, one of the few populations that, that literally have no home on earth. Wow. So it really is an incredibly dire situation right now. And 
when you were talking about the fact that people weren't questioning whether it's an ethnic cleansing or um but rather questioning whether it is an ethnic cleansing or genocide do you think that calling it a genocide would spur the international community to more action if this label was used so there are many people who, and I am not, unfortunately not one of them, who understand the technical differences between these different kinds of tragedies. From my perspective, um, if someone tells me a genocide is happening or an ethnic cleansing, I'm not sufficiently expert to be able to define, distinguish between the two, but, but from a moral or an ethical point of view, my emotional reaction is roughly the same. Right. So the fact that we're not having a reaction like that um, as a people strikes me as, or not enough of us, um, strikes me as, as deeply problematic. Um, uh, and I think maybe just our, our global conscience is on pause right now or in shock or on overload um, as, as we sort of sort out what the 21st century is gonna look like. In the meantime, there are, there are a million people who are about ready to get washed away, who've already been burned out. Um, and that strikes me as something worth paying attention to. If we can't pay attention to a situation like this, then I wonder what kind of refugee situation we think might be worth our time and attention. Right, that's a really good point. And do you think that there are actions that the United States government should be taking to ameliorate this situation? Sure, I think there are lots and lots of different things that, that the international community as a general can do. I, I will say shout out to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. You know, it's very chic to, you know, lambast the UN for not doing as good a job as we think it ought to, but they're the soldiers that show up every day, the humanitarian right. soldiers that show up every day doing this thankless work without a lot of fanfare and glory, um, and then ask for help. And, you know, what could we do for starters? Well, help them. If they're willing to get these things up and going and they need more resources, perhaps we ought to listen and give them to them. Um, we also could imagine uh, it, you know, working with ASEAN, um, the regional economic organization, and thinking about alternative places where people might be placed, and ASEAN's done some stuff. There are some countries that could potentially house it. I mean, there could be an international conference on what we do right. with, I mean, there are many ways that we can signal in the international community. There are tools at our disposal that we're taking a crisis seriously. Oftentimes, it's the United States has taken leadership for some of these things to happen. Um, that's unlikely under the current configuration of power that we have in our country. But I would certainly hope that the goodness of the American people, particularly on an issue like this, could rise above politics and that our leadership could still be heard and felt. And if not us, then I turn to our friends, the Canadians, or some other country with a conscience that's willing to stand up and act. It doesn't have to only be the United States. Norway takes leadership on certain kinds of issues. And to be fair, some of them have, but not enough yet to mobilize the resources that are needed, which includes really just a place for them to call home, sure. even if temporarily. Right. Right. And on that note of the international community really taking note of these crises, one unfortunate trend that we've seen in Europe recently is growing opposition to welcoming refugees and migrants. And in Hungary, Prime Minister Viktor Orban just recently was elected for another term. We know that he's notoriously anti-immigrant, and this is not a new phenomenon of anti-immigrant leaders gaining power in Europe. Um, do you think that we can expect to see further decreases in Hungary's cooperation with the international community, in Hungary specifically, and in general, what effect do you think that 
this trend in Europe might have on the world order, do you think that we'll continue to see resistance to helping these people who need it most? So I think that um, there are a few different things going on at once uh, in your question, so let me try to unpack them. Um, so there's Hungary specifically and Orban, and then the question of his leadership and his relationship with Putin and Russia and Russia's influence in these kinds of, of populist movements, particularly in Hungary, um, but certainly not exclusively in other places in Europe as well. And I think that's sort of one set of issues um, to consider. There's the general question of whether Europe um, you know, as a wealthy, uh, you know, as a set of wealthy economies or all wealthy economy, depending on your, your level of optimism about the EU, um, needs to deal with what the United States and other countries, uh, you know, like ours have, have had, have had in, in, you know, the blessings of abundance in some, for some time. And Europe hasn't had as much, um, which is when you're an attractive economy, people from less attractive economies will often want to migrate and work there. And when you have, um, labor shortage issues for certain kinds of jobs, or you have a demographic trend that leaves you with an insufficient number of workers in important, uh, in important job categories, um, then that can become temporarily attractive, or it can become, you know, legally or, 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 or through less um, transparent means. So, you know, a number of countries have had some experience with this when we have economies that allow people to make money and send remittances back home to their families. And, you know, one hard, hard, for me to stand in moral judgment, my grandfather did this right. from Finland. So now apparently an except, not Norway, but an acceptable <laughs> country, I suppose. Nonetheless, Swedish-speaking Finn. But he essentially came to the United States in search of a better life, moderately legally, from the perspective of the departing country that he that he was from. Uh, so so that's a sympathetic. Europe is probably just going to have to learn how to how to grow up and deal with this the same way that the rest of us have been doing for some time. Um, hopefully, in a way that's consistent with their values and their humanity. Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone thinks that, that there should be no uh, um, unlimited, you know, con uh, immigration or unlimited, no constraints to borders. We understand countries need to be able to control their borders. But there are a lot that has been learned in country, by countries who've been doing this for a while that Europe may choose to learn from should it, now that it's a, a, an attractive destination beyond its desired uh, number of entry permits. Um, so I would say they're probably on a learning curve there, um, and we could talk more about that. And there's the question about racism and the different kinds of bigotries um, that are implied in, um, or stated in, uh, in, in, in your question. Um, and uh, I will say that you know, for people who study political science, the idea that when times are somewhat turbulent or when a political leader doesn't frankly have much to offer in terms of ideas or legitimate contributions to make appeals to some sort of ism, to some sort of scapegoating or some sort of bigotry is the, the oldest saw, you know, that's the old sort of standard trade. Milosevic does it, you know, different people do it, Hitler did it, different people do these sorts of things. Let's appeal sure. to someone's sense of bigotry of other. And it's it's usually the sign of a pretty pathetic politician that has to um, has to resort to that that doesn't have enough policy ideas to let those stand for themselves. But it is something that can be effective because people get a little anxious, a little scared, and you know you can appeal to people's the worst angels of their nature um, or their fears in addition to their hopes and dreams and the better angels of their nature. And politicians have figured that out, and Orban is one of them. He's not the only one. You see far right politicians or anti-immigrant or anti-other politicians. Um, doing better than one would have imagined in different parts of Europe. Usually the other, quote unquote, 
will be whatever a country's natural vulnerability is, right? So in some cases, it's a religious conflict that's the divide. In some cases, it's an ethnic conflict. It can be a racial conflict. There can be different kinds of things. Um, and politicians tend to figure that out. So um, I think you're seeing that happen in Europe. And the big question is, um, is it going to be enough um, in combination with other factors and other vulnerabilities to see more political victories? And one hopes the answer is no. Um, But we've certainly seen these kinds of anti-immigrant, anti-migrant, anti-refugee sentiments in combination with other economic populist messages be enough to turn defeat into victory, which is why politicians do it. Wow. Yeah, that is a very interesting take on this unfortunate trend. And just to kind of dig a little deeper into this, why do you think the the anti-immigrant message has resonated so much with the Hungarian public at this point in time? Well, I'm not sure that it's more Hungarian than others. Look, it's a little. Sc- I mean, the 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 fact that uh, that I obviously am sympathetic to the idea of people trying to fight for better lives for themselves and their families. Right. Um, you know that that I think is the most American you know belief you can have. It doesn't mean that you that you want you know total chaos. It has to be managed. It has to be organized. And I love the U.S. refugee uh, program. You know, it's not very much fun to wait for two years and get vetted and all of that sort of thing. Um, and you know, people can feel like that's just an eternity at the time, and and it may feel that way. But what it does show is we've been doing this for years, including by the way for Europeans. Where did we first learn how to admit refugees? It was from Europeans who were refugees themselves, right? Sure, Leaving, yeah. leave the, including Hungarians who were refugees themselves, right? Right. So let's just remember we're only a generation or two away from the foot, the shoe being on the other foot here. Um, and I think that we can all agree that we both learned a lot about actually the mechanics of how you do this, right? It's not a big mystery in the United States how to process refugees. We know how to do it. And who knows how to do it just about best? The Catholic Church and the religious institutions. We have been welcoming refugees for decades. And we know there's some mechanics and policy things and vetting and a whole bunch of stuff that, that can happen. And the Europeans didn't know that as much. And I think it scares people to think your government's out of control and these unknown people are coming in and who are they all, and things look different, and does the government have you know, your back, essentially? Sure. And I think Americans can feel quite confident that when it comes to refugee processing, yes, we know what we're doing. Um, the European governments, I think, are in a learning curve that's a little stupor. They're, um, they've been giving refugees you know, more than they've been accepting refugees, and so they didn't have as many systems in place, and they were caught a little bit unprepared. And you know, maybe in retrospect, there's more we could have done to be their friends and help them understand some of those mechanics. In the meantime, Hungary's on the end of things where they were, you know, where people were passing through and you know have their own particular um, national identities and other kinds of economic situations and stresses that may have meant, meant they were a bit more vulnerable. Um, and it, you know, it, it, leadership matters. And if you have leadership that's going to try to whip up bigotry, you're going to have more bigotry. Then it's gonna. Then if you have a leadership that tries to tamp it down, and I think Urban took advantage rather than trying to lead with principle. Do you think that Putin's leadership will result in increased anti-migrant attitudes throughout Europe in the near future? 
I think Putin wants to sow chaos and interrupt the transatlantic alliance. Okay. He's got a fairly straightforward, very well articulated, famously in a speech that he gave a couple of years ago in Russian in December that you know, really articulates his worldview, and he's been pretty straightforward about it, and he's implementing it. And so I think he's indifferent to the type of chaos in a way. Right. He just wants to sow the chaos. And if it's anti-immigrant sentiment, that's going to get him someplace in one country, sure. But I find it really fascinating that the people that he invites to this sort of famous RT, Russia Today, Today dinner in Moscow that's gotten our former national security advisor in so much trouble <laughs> were both him and Jill Stein, right? So right. he's ideologically indifferent in a sense, but both of them were just, you know, they were representing, were a disruptive candidate or representing disruptive candidates. In Lithuania, you get the, um, you know, you get sort of rumor has it support from, from Russia for the Lithuanian Peace Party because they're pacifists and they won't fight if things, you know, Russian, you know. And sure. then you end up with, you know, the, you know, the far right parties and the UKIP party. So whatever the disruptive elements are likely to be from the right or the left are the things that he tends to want to support. So it's sowing chaos. And if it looks like that's going to work for migration and immigration, then that's what he'll use as a tool. And our question, if we really care about our national defense, if we're serious about it, and if you view Putin as a, a primary threat, is, which I think you should, is um, don't fall for it. Yeah. Just don't fall for it. Be smarter than that, um, which I think we're capable of being in this country and should be. And I have the similar faith in, in, in our European allies' uh, capacity to you know, use their brains and not just their emotions. But I want to say with all of this um, that I'm, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't mean to paint with too broad a stroke um, uh, to be too dismissive of people who feel anxious. Look, these are scary times for people whose um, economic futures are uncertain, and more importantly, economic, the economic futures of their children are uncertain. If I were stepping back and saying, what's the source of anti-immigrant sentiment or what's the source of anti-migrant sentiment, I would, now I was trained by economists, but I would turn you back to um, a sort of rough set of figures. We can argue about the details if people <laughs> want to get nerdy economists with me, but the bottom line is, um, we talk about inequality, and we all sort of talk about how inequality matters, but people act this way when they're scared. And people are not scared now for stupid reasons. They're scared for very smart reasons. My quibble isn't with the fear. It's with the way that they're targeting the fear, and I think they're being duped. Since I graduated from college, which was <clears throat> more than 20 years ago, um, but not more than 30 years ago, the size of the U.S. economy has doubled. Okay. So from all of history until I finished college, the size of the U.S. economy got to go to trillion dollars, $10 trillion. Wow. And then it's sort of $20 trillion now. I mean, I'm ballparking this, so economists don't quibble. Go with me in spirit here. <laughs> Roughly, that's right. Now, what's happened to the distribution of that wealth? Well, you know, you stop and look at the way that we chose to distribute and have wealth th uh, throughout our society. The richest quintile, the richest 10%, the poorest 10%, the middle class. All I can tell you is my grandfather was the top 1% of his day. The top 20% of Americans during my grandfather's time, um, this is the World War II greatest generation, and I think this is one of the reasons that they were, in fact, the greatest generation. Um, maybe the only one that will ever be this way. They, they took 8% of the growth dividend, and they took 12% of their share of the growth, if you were dividing evenly, and they pushed it down and created the world's first middle class. Okay. What's my generation done and my parents' generation done? 
we've kept basically all of the growth, 100% of the growth for the top 10% of Americans. Now I'm exaggerating very slightly. Prove me wrong, <laughs> please. Um, the bottom line is not only did we keep all of our growth, but we took all of everybody else's too. Okay. Now people are right to be furious about that, but you shouldn't be furious at a migrant. Right. You should be furious at me. You should be furious at the not the one at the one percent and at the ten percent. You should be furious at the people who built this system or who did not mitigate against the system that was coming naturally through automation and other other uh, global trends. Um, to, to be good stewards of the sacred trust of democracy that was entrusted to us. And we blew it. We kept the money for ourselves and we kept your money for ourselves too. And that's actually unforgivable. And the dirty little secret is almost no one knew we were doing it. We just thought we were going and getting jobs after college. Sure. But we're supposed to be the leaders who are supposed to be thinking about these things and making good choices on behalf of, of the public. And, and, and caring about these kinds of things. So, you know, a sin of omission is still a sin in God's eyes, as far as I know. Sure, yeah. As much as a sin of commission. So what's happening now? People are justifiably furious and scared and angry about what's happened with the distribution of resources. And they've been conned into blaming refugees instead of blaming everyone I went to business school with, which is who deserves the blame. So it's more a misdirected sure. anger that is driving this. But, but don't get upset with them for being angry. Right. Target it effectively. Not at the refugees and migrants who have no other Don't place. fall for scapegoating. Right. It's, it's a lame mind that scapegoats a refugee kid instead of focusing on my, my class of MBAs at MIT. Wow, who yeah. feel entitled to $2 million annual salaries by virtue of our inherent brilliance. Okay, if you're going to go, <laughs> you know, if, if you want to go, you know, invent a, something rather and market it and create a company, you know, God be with you, then I think you deserve that sort of stuff. But an ordinary job that you get as an ordinary MBA, I'm sorry, you're not worth it. For two, yeah. The system's yeah. rigged to give you a salary totally disproportionate to the risk you took or the value you bring. You feel entitled to it based on some sense of, well, I don't know what. Um, but that's where a lot of the money is really going. And, uh, and uh, I, I really view that economic malaise, and we can call it inequality, and people can say I'm a raging socialist. I'm not. I'm a raging capitalist. <laughs> I just think capitalism needs to work. Right. I, don't think it, I don't like crony capitalism, which is what we have now. And I really don't like taking these vulnerable refugee kids and trying to blame them as the source of the problem. Well, that definitely makes sense and to highlight one other situation that we've been seeing recently with vulnerable children and migrants um there's been a lot of publicity about the caravan that is uh, coming from central america and has been highlighted by president trump's tweets and many people have called it a border security threat there's been talk about sending in the national guard do you think that this caravan really poses any threat? We've seen a lot of articles that it's mainly women and children. And um, in a broader light, do you think that Trump sending in the National Guard is a signal in a shift in how migration is going to be viewed and handled in the United States? Not if we're going to be a great country in the 21st century. I think this is all ridiculous. 
If we want to be a great country in the 21st century, we need to realize the real threats, which are, you know, things like Putin declaring unofficial war and fighting hybrid war on the United States and protecting our election systems, protecting our companies from, you know, having North Korean dictators get upset because of a movie and, you know, infiltrating them. Um, you know, there are security threats that we have and there are security threats we need to take seriously. I highly doubt a caravan of women and children on our southern border makes the list of top 10. Sure. I, you know, particularly, you know, when our own heads of intelligence are crying from the rooftops and testifying before Congress bipartisanly that we actually aren't securing critical infrastructure when our electricity grid is vulnerable to hacking. You know, I mean, I think there are plenty of threats that we're not taking seriously that President Trump is ignoring and not paying attention to that, that, that really could cripple a lot of things that go on uh, in this country. Um, in, you know, from, from infrastructure to nation states that are acting and even, you know, a, a variety of other things that are you know, non-nation states that we could be thinking about. If I were worried about a caravan coming up from the southern border, I'd certainly much more be worried about uh, some of the cartels and things like that than I would be about, you know, an odd, this, this group. I mean, it's, it's playing on people's prejudices rather and fears rather than trying to actually saying you know, saying, saying that we're going to solve a, 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 we're going to diagnose and solve a real security problem like the grown-ups do. Sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And to finish out, I'd just like to ask um, how you see the, the situation progressing in the near future. What is the future for asylum seekers as they are increasingly being shut out of the countries that they turn to? Um, and do you think that we will see an increase in stateless people in the future as states close their borders to refugees? Well, I don't know that I'll stay. I would question the premise. I actually think it may be more Western states that are thinking about closing their shoulders. If you want to know who's not, look yeah. in the developing world. Wow. Look, at, look at who's actually got three million people who are living um, from the next country over, you can look at Kenya, you can look at Nigeria, you can look at, look all around. It's the neighboring countries, Turkey. Look at the places that are actually absorbing refugees. It's the neighboring states. And that's what's the, the most, the sort of the dirty little secret is, we're not the main story. We're the sideshow in a sense. We're setting a pretty bad example. But um, when we're talking about, are we gonna take in, you know, the big debate in the United States, tens of thousands or a small number of hundred thousand of refugees, a year, you know, depending on whether you're in the Republican or Democratic administration, and then you compare that to what Kenya is doing with millions, sure. you sort of have to say yeah. to yourself, "Oi." So, no, I think and Bangladesh is taking in Bangladesh is taking in Rohingya. Whether they, you know, the question is, will we support them or not? What do I think? I think that the world is a pretty unstable place right now, and I certainly hope the cooler heads prevail and we don't do things that are going to create more refugees. But we do know that there are a number of factors at play that suggest that that might not be the case that's not the case, I really would urge all of us to sit down and think long and hard about whether we want the better angels of our nature guiding this um, or whether we want to let our own fears uh, and misplaced anxiety consume us, realizing that we can be kind and we can be safe and we can be generous simultaneously right. as we have been in the past. And as I have faith, we will be in the future. 
Well, that is a good note to end on. And thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Students Talk Security Dean Seavers. It was truly a pleasure to get your perspective. My pleasure. Thank you very much. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.